when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Wednesday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Uh, gathered around the table this Wednesday, we've got Patrick Klepek. Hello. Danielle Riendo. Hi. And Austin Walker. Hey, how's it going? Well, I don't know. It's, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. It's... How's, how's, how's anything going these days, Rob, Austin? you want to talk about climate change? I feel like you got thoughts. Oh, yeah, God. you want to talk about uh, I did. Uh, the apocalypse? I talked a lot at uh, my therapist's office the other day. <laughs> and you know things are dark when, like, you're pretty sure your therapist is, like, on the phone with their therapist, like, the minute you wrap up. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, anyway. Oh. Uh, yeah, it has been. It's been, a, it's been kind of a dark week. Uh, the kind of week that can lead one to a bit or more than a bit of despair. And perhaps knowing that, perhaps anticipating it, uh, I recently got back into one of my favorite novel series, oh. uh, the Night Soldier series by Alan First. And uh, I don't know if like y'all are familiar with this. It's It's actually a surprisingly long-running series, but it's like one of those series that has been around for a while, but only really started to catch on, I would say, in the last like 10, 15 years. And they are all like espionage suspense novels set in interwar Europe, particularly like the last few years before the outbreak of World War II. And they are... I have complicated feelings about these because like a lot of authors who do genre work for a long time there's a tendency to become a little bit formulaic. It's very mm-hmm. tough, I think, for working writers to avoid the the pull of the familiar. Like, people have their own tics, their stylistic uh, habits and patterns, and you read enough of someone's series, you start to see those again and again, and it can cause them to pale a little <laughs> bit. I think at times, first series uh, does fall into that trap, and that's why I took a little break from them, but I got back into it this past weekend by uh, reading a book called Dark Voyage. And it was useful because it was it was exactly one of those types of books I was describing, right? It's a bit formulaic, like they're familiar beats in the story, but damn, they're good beats. Like right. I really enjoyed uh, getting back into it. And I think what was really nice about reading it is the cool thing that these novels do is they're espionage thrillers about a war we know a lot of the arc of. We know a lot of what's going to happen. And so 
it's a spy series about trying to figure out intention and the truth of what's behind different actions and, and what's going to happen in the future. And as the reader, you always roughly know what's going to happen. And that also means that a lot of these characters are kind of screwed. And we know that too. And for some reason, uh, I think that makes me like the series a little bit more, if that makes sense. More than you would... Than, than you think you would in a kind of abstract way or more than other spy fiction? Um, I think perhaps a little bit more than other spy fiction because, Ooh. well, let me put it this way. I don't think, uh, I, I don't think first compares particularly well to Lacar. I mean, Lacar at his best. Do you want to like writing... set up what that means for people who don't know what these names mean? Or like, I I realize now that like I'm a neophyte in spy fiction, right? Like I've read mm -hmm. a little Lacar. This is the first time I'm reading uh, I, I, that I'm reading um, the person whose name I've already forgotten. Furt, 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 first, first, there's an S before that. First, um, and so I know Lacar's reputation, and I know how people talk about Lacar. But a lot of people probably don't, and I certainly don't have the full context of like what is the what is the genre? What is the state of the genre in twenty eighteen? Hmm. Uh, twenty eighteen. I'm probably not up enough on the current stuff to give you a great answer to that. But I would say the the spy novel genre tends to fall into different let's call them buckets, right? Like mm -hmm. there are there are your more thriller type writers. Um, at times, Tom Clancy is basically writing those. Like his best work in that front is the Cardinal of the Kremlin, mm. uh, which is his stab at a serious spy novel. But it's still a Tom Clancy novel. In the end, you know the good guys win. Heroes are there are heroes in the story. There are people right. portrayed very sympathetically. And I think at the other end of the spectrum, you've got um, John Le Carr, uh, who you know most recognizable from uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And Lacar is, well, A, he's writing something that I think a lot of people would term basically like literature. His best works, I think, are taken seriously by literary critics in a way a lot, like, in a way Tom Clancy never is or would be, right? Right. And the other aspect of that is Lacar is writing something that's very informed by the history and the things associated with uh British espionage in World War II and after. Um, so it's very uh, Oxbridge inflected because the thing to remember about the British spy programs is that they tended to be packed uh, with people, graduates of elite universities, like right. probably even more elitist than like the early days of the CIA, uh, for instance. And they were also sort of racked by scandals throughout the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s where they kept basically uncovering like massive conspiracies of double agents. Right. The and KGB where that was all the way up in uh, yeah. the British, the British uh, spy system. Right. And it was basically like a huge, like a huge disaster for the prestige of the British secret service. Uh, but also really raised questions about sort of the blind spots and assumptions that went into selecting agents like that. But where all that comes out in Lacar's fiction is sort of a beautiful despair. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a friend of mine put it really well when he got me into Lacar. He, he argued that the central tenet of Lacar's books, uh, particularly the, the novel Starling, George, starring George Smiley, 
are fundamentally about um, the death of the West as an idea that was worth like holding on to, right? Like a, a like the argument being made is that the Cold War and the paranoia and uh, the moral cost of steering two major Western empires through World War II and after uh, basically demolishes a lot of the ideals that informed and sculpted uh, a lot of the people attracted to spycraft in Britain. And that's sort of the backdrop for Lacar's books. There's a very right. like heavy thesis being made. First isn't, do- <laughs> first isn't quite doing that. First, no. is, first wants to like put you there. Like he wants you to experience what it may have been like to be yeah, someone on the ground watching. F- it's like something phenomenological, like you know the 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 great the great phenomenological philosophers would describe for you the sound of the ringing of the bell. And in my experience of reading first so far, it's like, boy, I have a really good idea of what those fascists feel like to be around, and like what the boots feel like on my back and what the uniforms look like and what the smell of this cafe is like and what the, you know, what, what, what the expression is on the face of the woman who knows that she's about to betray me or whatever. Right. Like that stuff is not there. There is something just like, it's almost, I I, want to say like, um, not exploitation fiction about it, like exploitation film about it, but it is this sort of like enhanced senses. It's it's a sensual sort of spy fiction from what I'm reading, right? It's very much interested in, and I don't mean sensual in the James Bond fucky sense. I mean in it the, definitely like, gets a little fucky. As the okay, series I've not goes gotten on. to the fuckiness quite yet, uh, oh. so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, but for now, it's very much like the place and time is just so striking. And a lot to what you said before, which is like, yeah, I know where this goes. You know, I know what happens yeah. in this part of the world just a few years later. Yeah, I, I think that vividness is probably what the series accomplishes at its best because what's most relatable in this is this feeling of the alienation from reality you experience as all the shit is happening in front of you, which I think is something a lot of us have struggled with ourselves in the last year or two. (laughs) Um, But there's this great moment, I think in the book uh, you're reading Austin night soldiers, it's either in night soldiers or dark star, uh, which is a second, but there is a lengthy sequence on uh, that takes place during crystal knocked. And there's this aside where, uh, the spy, the the Soviet spy, is sort of fleeing from these roving bands of fascists, uh, you know, laying waste to uh, Jewish stores and neighborhoods, and he flees from them. And he eventually finds sanctuary with this, uh, like, you know, Berlin cop, basically, right. and he's just an old, like, he, he, you know, he's just an old beat cop, uh, basically, and he has this brief exchange with this, with the, with this officer, but what makes the moment really great is he describes the moment where you can see the look on this guy's face as he realizes like this entire life built to basic, like built around the idea of like maintaining order and putting a stop to shit like this. And uh-huh. like, you know, sending hooligans packing and all that <laughs> stuff. All that's literally going up in smoke before his eyes. And he's been given official orders. Like, don't get in these guys way like they're doing they're doing the Fuhrer as well and realizing that like that's 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 who I serve now that's that's my reality and the things that gave me my identity I'm now completely I still have my job I still have my place but like 
I'm completely unmoored from my identity and the things I like believed about the world. And that's kind of first at his best. And that's kind of what keeps me coming back are those little grace notes about ordinary people suddenly comprehending that like, oh, we're not just going to get out of this. Right. We're in it. Yeah. This is a thing. I mean, I, again, I think that that's, we joke about the global warming thing up top. We talk often about fascism and proto-fascism in the world in 2018. Uh, you know, we, we, we probably do not have time to get into the elections in Brazil uh, over the past couple of weeks right now. Mm. Uh, but like, we are in it in a way that is i think a lot about a meeting i had right after the trump election um uh two years ago in which all the eic's advice uh we always had a friday meeting at the time um every week um and we we used to get together in the munchies kitchen advice and have uh, cocktails or have like a drink and like talk about what we're proud of from all of our teams that week and talk about what initiatives we had going on we still have meetings like that they're just a little different now um but the one immediately after the election was you know two or three days after and was um you know i guess three days after and was uh incredibly down at first you know obviously we were all people who expected the out the the other outcome or or at least hope for the other outcome in that election uh and who were scrambling to figure out how do we do our jobs in a world where donald trump is the president where a campaign like that one is what won Um, what does this say about our nation does this mean that we should be trying to get out of the current bubbles of coverage that we're in should we be paying more attention to the flyover states quote unquote should we be should there be more debates should we debate the issues more or should we double down and make sure we're not falling into issues of false equivalency and all those questions were in our head but i remember leaving that that meeting at a certain point and, and coming out like really energized and like yeah we're gonna tackle this thing and it has been two years since that and any any what I think of in that meeting was this, what I recognize now as a sort of naivete that we thought we were going to do a thing and not like save the day. I was not any, there was not like a messianic complex, but there was a feeling of like, okay, well, we're going to come into work on Monday and then we're going to do the thing that we need to do. And the re- recognition two years on is like, oh, no, 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 no. Like every aspect of life is now constantly colored in this way because we are in it. And so it is not about figuring out an action so much as figuring out a posture um, and adapting everything we do going forward. Um, and I, again, I'm, I'm like barely a quarter of the way through Night, night Soldiers, um, but I'm, I do sense a lot of that here. I do sense a lot of the like, oh, the way I used to move to my town is not the same anymore. The way I used to relate to the like shitty rich family in this town, like it doesn't fly anymore. And it's not just like this was one instance where someone overreacted. It's like the the basic formula has shifted. And so I used to count for two and now I count for one. What what do I do now? How do I adjust adjust to that? So that's definitely speaking to me so far in, in, in Night Soldiers. Yeah, like I think one of the other things that I've I've been really getting some relief from in these books is that the cool the cool trick of perspective that they play is basically for the by and large for the characters you're you're reading about everything looks like it's utterly hopeless. Like and some of the books end on basically like this note of and by the way this may have all been for nothing. Uh, like there's, there's a book basically where uh, it's about this Polish intelligence, sorry, this French intelligence officer working in Poland 
he sort of catches wind of some things the Germans are studying with regard to uh, tanks and how they can like and, and their ability to traverse difficult terrain. And sort of the culmination of it is uh, as this great passage goes through Germany. And again, one of those little beats that first is is so good at uh, capturing is the terror of going through Germany in like oh. 1938. And he was like this country of, uh, you know, millions and millions of people. How do all of them like have this fanatical like idea of what it is to be German? Like I'm Paul, like, you know, Poland's a new country and they're still sorting out like what the hell does it mean to be right. a Pole? And here he's going through this country where like everyone is super hyped about being a German and just the utter like terror of uniformity uh, that he sees there. But the, the novel culminates in him literally seeing the Germans practicing for um, the invasion of France, like coming through mm -hmm. the Ardennes forest. And he's like, we, we got it. We, we have a good idea of what their military plans are going to be. When they attack France, we we've got the we've got the plan. We're going to give it to French intelligence, and French intelligence's reaction is basically like, "Well, that doesn't seem very likely." Like <laughs> oh, that's wait, really hard. Like Star plans, and they're like, yeah. "No one would build a death a death." They're calling wait, it the Death Star. Really, they're going to get an entire tank army through right. a forest? No, no. Mm. And the end of the book is like, yeah. This the entire action they've been doing is like uh, basically basically for naught. But I think what I, the thing that I do like about it is that it is a reminder that you can never see the end of this shit when you're in it. Like right. mm -hmm. all these characters, like the triumph of Nazi Germany and fascism starts to seem increasingly inevitable. You know, the communists are knocked off one by one and seem increasingly unable to mount an effective response. And then the non-aggression pact happens. Yeah. And so Stalin is basically given up the fight uh, and doesn't give a shit. Yeah. And so all these characters are convinced, like, they're kind of witnessing the end of history in, in a terrible way. And what, the only thing that you know as the reader is, like, this in inexorability of fascism that it desperately wants you to believe in the, the inevitability of its desired outcomes can go away really fucking fast. Um, and can change really fast, especially because the other part of these books is they're arrogant fucking people. <laughs> right. The, I mean, I think the last thing I'll say here is, is that feeling of it feeling, I mean, I, I think we'll wrap back around to this when, when we get to, to my waypoint in a, in a bit, but like, that feeling of inevitability of of closed off alternatives of, of the feeling that like oh this is it like this is where this is all going is so stifling and so um it's so depressing and i don't just mean that in an emotional sense i mean that in terms of like it removes the ability to act it means i, I mean that in like a very in a very like all of that energy gets deflated and you just can't do shit. Um, and it is one of those things where like intellectually that is, that is where I align with so many things. I, I, when I, when I run the numbers, right. When I look at everything, when I think about how I believe the world is, is working and how the various forces that are in power function, I am like fairly, I guess philosophically, I would say nihilistic, 
not pessimistic, which is to say, I don't think that there's, which is to say, like, I think we can still find our own meaning in this. I think we can still find our own subjective value in it. But like, I don't know that they're like coming out of it in a good way. Um, but in my heart, I know that there is not, there's no value in preaching that belief. Um, because when I look at these like spies, they would continue to do the work they did. And, you know, eventually maybe someone would take their shit seriously. Right. Maybe it wouldn't be the the plans for the Blitzkrieg, but it would be uh, the U-boat, uh, uh, you know, uh, strategies there or, or, or plans. Right. It would be uh, plans about weapon development. There, there are wins in here and it's not, you know, not to like completely mix metaphors here, but like you got to swing when you're at the plate. Right. And if you don't swing, you're going to get struck out. Um, and that is that is an inevitability, even if. When I look at the when I look at the batter, when I look at the pitcher, when I look at everything that's that's happening, and it's like this is a little league player going up against like a Hall of Famer, he's going to get struck out no matter what. You know, maybe maybe there's a bunt in there, maybe there's a lucky a lucky hit, and everything falls apart, and there's a, a chance for change. Um, and so yeah, it has actually been a little bit of a relief to dig into something, and also there's just a degree of detail in these books that is like a fun escape. There is there is something. It's it's interesting to read a book in which that opens with someone being beat by a fascist, um, beat to death by a fascist, uh, and still feeling like, ah, oh, I'm escaping <laughs> into this novel. But here we are in 2018, where that is a possible, where that is a possibility. Yeah. Um, speaking of there being no escape and <laughs> uh, and, not, and not seeing uh, and, and not seeing a way for the, for the little leaguer to take on the uh, the Hall of Famer at the, at the mound uh, Patrick let's talk a little bit about your your waypoint this week which is an article about Mark Zuckerberg sort of trying to reckon with the thing he's built uh, yeah, it's a uh, piece by uh, Emin Osnos, who's one of the most talented writers over at The New Yorker. He does a lot of really great lengthy profiles um, and things like that. And he has a, a piece that went up um, a, a couple weeks back um, called uh, Can Mark Zuckerberg Fix Facebook Before It Breaks Democracy? Um, which uh, poses a big question and at first suggests that it's just going to be an editorial riffing on, on Facebook and social media. But actually, it's a really lengthy profile um, of Mark Zuckerberg that sort of tries to I think an answer like a like a pretty fundamental question that people didn't think that much about when Facebook was just seen as a fun tool to share photos and like have conversations or it was just purely a communications tool that allowed you to talk to people in a way that felt more casual than text messages and phone calls, um, which is like, oh, actually, you know, Facebook is its own nation state at this point. And who is the person running this thing? They are not, a you know, they're not uh, elected, you can't kick them out, um, and yet they have an enormous amount of influence, like who actually is this person? And it's, you know, the, the piece opens with the great irony that Mark Zuckerberg is an incredibly private person, and yet he has created a service that is built upon a uh, philosophy that people should share more often and that they may be uncomfortable with it, but they'll get used to it. Um, and it's, it's really long, it's like, you know, it's like a 30, 40 minute read it's it's you know it's um but it's it's a really interesting deep dive into both the history of facebook the psychology of facebook and trying to get at like who is mark zuckerberg i mean i i'm fairly sure we're probably all on the same page based on our pre-show conversation um th that i came away like uh, like upset disturbed angry 
um, and thinking that Mark Zuckerberg is not the person that should be running that company uh, anymore. Like this is someone who uh, it, I, it, he has dangerous ideas for how society should be run and the way that um, his his company should use the power it has built. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I came away very disturbed about like the, the picture it paints about a person who has tremendous power and doesn't seem to do a whole lot of self-reflection over what he should be doing with it or not doing with it. Yeah, it's a really, it's a strange thing because I also came away, like with every passage, I became more and more put off by him. And the weird <laughs> thing is like, he becomes, it's a strange thing. First, it feels like he is trying very hard to come across as aggressively normal. Yeah. The, yeah. the jokes about like Mark Zuckerberg being an alien wearing a person's skin and hoping nobody catches on to it. Like, even in this profile, he still fundamentally comes across as somebody who's just trying really hard to be bland and anodyne and yet also a little bit warm and familiar in a way that feels unpracticed, uh, but not natural is, is the strange thing. But that's just the way these things feel. The thing that keeps putting me off as I read it is that this seems like somebody who is perpetually naive, perpetually hasn't thought through the thing or thinks that, you know, if he just gets the right data, he will be able to be the one to implement the fix. At right. every turn, he just seems like somebody who, on a very deep level, remains an arrogant person who doesn't know what he doesn't know and is forever playing catch up on a reality he's been very irresponsible with. The it is it is like not only does he think he has the data to make the calls, he often doesn't think he has the data. He doesn't even think, do I need data to make calls? He'll make a call on a gut or on the the request of uh, his partner or or, or on... contrarian just to be contrarian, yeah. right? Like like the he comes from a Silicon Valley philosophy of people are going to tell you what you're doing is the wrong thing, prove prove them wrong and. There's a certain, like, I, you understand the attraction to that philosophy that, like, new ideas are going to, you know, be seen as something that may not be the correct path. But he's taken that to such an irresponsible length that it no longer, you know, applies anymore. And, in fact, to do, to continue to adhere to that philosophy, what is it? The, the, the philosophy that they were built on was, like, uh, move fast and break things. Yeah. Um, like, you get what the attraction is there. But it's like, hey, like – People are like a genocide is being committed using Facebook as a primary tool to dehumanize people. And you're just now getting around to like hiring people that speak that language. Uh, like what the fuck? This is, this is, this is like, there's that, there's like a, a two or three paragraph uh, spread towards the middle of it where they talk about a few initiatives that Facebook has had. I mean, they talk about a lot. There's a lot of like fantastic information here about what things got priority, pr got prioritization in terms of resourcing, like the growth team, unsurprisingly, mm -hmm. yeah. versus the, versus the, like uh, the, the teams about making sure that they weren't like completely harming people. Um, but there's this moment where, um, where, where his partner, uh, Chan, uh, Patricia Chan, is that, is that her first name? I believe so. Yeah. Priscilla. Um, Priscilla. 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 Priscilla Chan. Thank you. Says like, Oh, hey, it's like in 2012 and it's like, hey, the world really needs more organ donors. And so Zuckerberg was like, I know what we should do is we should just do like a little thing that says, like, if you're an organ don donor, you can you can mark it and that will trigger a notification to your friends. And and then maybe that'll be like, you know, peer pressure and people will sign up to be organ donors. And it jumped like tw 20 fold, not 20 percent, 20 fold, 20 there, there times. Was the, um, there was the other many, one. So 
uh, there's this passage. Uh, da, da, da. It's like Facebook, right after also, that. Facebook also discovered its power to affect people's political behavior. Researchers found that during the 2010 midterm elections, Facebook was able to prod users to vote simply by feeding them pictures of friends who had already voted and by giving them uh, the option to click on an I voted button. I like distinctly remember like that yeah. mm-hmm. feature. Um, the technique boosted turnout by uh, 340,000 people, more than four times the number of votes separating Trump and Clinton in key states in the 2016 race. It became a running joke among employees that Facebook could tilt an election just by choosing where to deploy its I voted button. And like the, like the key word there is like joke, right? Like the, the, the way that, that – I mean obviously working on anything, you have to some, have some sort of emotional distance from it, like no, no matter how powerful it is. But the notion that, that it became a, a, like those sorts of things were treated as a joke, like underscores the lack of responsibility that is illustrated, like writ large in this piece, top down from Zuckerberg below, um, how Facebook is run as an organization and as a philosophy and, and ultimately as an ideology. There is a passage in here, and of course, there's a million great passages, uh, but this was something that really struck out to me, especially as somebody, you know, a fan of Halt and Catch Fire, and also somebody who just is interested in how, obviously, any technology is just an extension of the person who made it, or the people who made it, right? And everything everything about this is it has to do with the ubiquity of this as a platform, of the fact that, you know, 2.2 billion people, the, the amount that... Like this is a significant chunk of humanity. That's it's as much as like Christianity, right? Like yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, the, it's a fully yeah, it's the that analogy was the that was used. Yeah, yeah. Really, really incredible. And then there's this passage that just talks about kind of early days at Facebook, but like what what it all kind of came from. And it's, it says, you know, Zuckerberg carried two sets of business cards. One said, "I'm CEO, bitch." Visitors encountered a graffiti mural of a scantily clad woman riding uh, riding a Rottweiler. In Adam Fisher's Valley of Genius in Oral History of Silicon Valley, an early employee named Ezra Callahan uses, how much was the direction of the internet influenced by the perspective of 19, 20, 21-year-old yes. well-off white yes. boys? That That's quote, a question like, sociologists will be studying forever. That was like yeah. such a red flag, like when it, like, which is it's one of those like completely obvious takeaways, but then when someone actually says it, you just go, holy yeah. shit. <laughs> yep. Other good quote uh, is is by uh, Chamath uh, Palahapatia, who was the former VP of user growth, who uh, in in 2011, I think, uh, said, quote here, of his children, he added, they're not allowed to use this shit. Yeah. Uh, after saying after saying the short term dopamine driven feedback loops that we've created are destroying how society works. No civil discourse, no cooperation, misinformation, mistruth. Um, I, I, so this is not my waypoint this week, but um, a friend and I have been watching a series of uh, British shows that are called Hidden Killers of the Blank Home. And blank is filled in with like Edwardian or Victorian. Right. And it's, okay. it's a series that's about. Um, the ways in which people were being killed in these early How many episodes can you get out of that premise? I think it's like five or six. I've seen like four. I've seen Edwardian. I've seen Victorian. They do two different Victorian ones. And, you know, it's it's a lot of things that we now think like, yeah, of course, you can't put arsenic in your fucking wallpaper. It's arsenic. I don't care how good the green looks, you idiot. It's arsenic. Don't do it. Um, so it's stuff like that. It's stuff like people not knowing how electricity works or how like gas pipes work or the way toilets were first. And it's all these like – it's a lot of these like, wow, this technology is incredible and also it's fucking killing us. Um, and it's so hard for me not to look at this story and look at things like the the voter turnout thing. The idea that like, oh, yeah, we're just going to 
toss a button on here that's going to increase voter turnout by hundreds of thousands of people and think about deploying that sort of stuff in such a, a unilateral way with, with again and again, there are these examples where it's like Zuckerberg decided to do this or one other person or other division decided to do that without any sorts of like um, uh, care without a lot of uh, research into what the effects might be, or with the sort of research into the effects that is itself maybe uh, unethical because <laughs> it's research done without any actual real, uh, you know, informed consent. It's just people <laughs> being like, eh, yeah, I'll, I'll use Facebook, and that means they can do whatever, the, whatever I they want, want. Yeah, I wanted this cosmology thing, you know, like right. I want to read about my fate, and then all of a sudden then, you've uh, turned over, like, the, your photo data, your data because... Yeah. It's so hard not to imagine us looking back at this moment in a hundred years with the hidden killers of the Trumponian, Trumpinian, you know, home or whatever the fuck it is, and being like, "Yeah, those motherfuckers were stupid." <laughs> they were using <laughs> Facebook and just letting these people completely tinker with the basic structure of their democracy and their civil society. I think one of the, I think one of the other reasons that maybe you're primed to have this guy come across poorly to you in this article is that the title sets up this expectation that he is wrestling with this thing he's built. Right. How do we fix Facebook before it fucks up democracy? Basically, how do we, how do we make this thing we built not terrible? But as you read it, that's not actually what they're wrestling with is the thing. It's like, it's it, like the death star metaphor is apt. It's like, it's like the death star designer, uh, not the not the one in Rogue One, but like just your hypothetical not Death Nets. Star designer, <laughs> right. uh, basically saying well, like, obviously we don't want to take the Death Star apart. Uh, we don't want to not have a Death Star, but how do we make the Death Star less of a planet killer? Right, and you can't do those two things. Like its very existence is like it exists to be this enormous powerhouse. It exists to be bent toward bad ends. That's that's where its its power is and its influence it can project. It exists to do that. This entire piece is about people trying to find a way to like make the in, the thing that is almost inherently bad because of its size be not bad, but the same size. But also more importantly, be the same size. Don't get broken up. Be just yeah. good enough yep. not to get like antitrusted. Yeah, the, 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 Bill, the Bill Gates through line in this is really fascinating and how yeah. if there is a flaw in the piece, it doesn't f more fully go into the, the Microsoft breakup of the 90s. They kind of just pass over that as though like, ah, just be nice to Washington and like yeah. as, the, as though there was no legitimate reason to look into Microsoft's monopoly. Um, the, the you know, they, they actually get into that specific thing on the Facebook side where Zuckerberg is like, well, we don't have a monopoly. We we're so the fact that we're big and we do a bunch of different things. We're competing means, with Netflix for people's time. That's competition. Motherfucker, that is literally a monopoly. The idea that you are the single place, the single point of service for a number of connected uh, uh, industries is literally what a monopoly is. Like that is not a. No one is 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 playing with words. There's no hyperbole there. The thing that Mark Zuckerberg in this piece describes Facebook as is like a textbook definition of a monopoly. And the thing that actually bothers me more is, to go back to your point, Rob, of like, oh, is is this guy actually, is this place even really thinking about the problem of uh, what Facebook means for democracy or what Facebook means for, again, for civil society or discourse or any of that other stuff? Not only are they not thinking about it in a way that is uh, uh, kind of unrestrained from from a fear of breaking up or destroying their own thing, but they're also... In the moments where he talks about, in this piece, society or history or government, it's 
wrong. It's wrong. There's this moment where he's talking about a guy. Oh, is this, is, this the, is this the Caesar moment? Yeah, it's the Caesar moment. Oh, God. That, Jesus, oh, take this, the wheel. This, <laughs> and, and this, and I'll, I'll let you take this on. But like, this is one of my favorite moments in the way that a writer throws unbelievable shade at the figure they're profiling yeah. without necessarily like totally hitting them with the hammer. I'm just going to read gives, this. Can I just read yeah, this two paragraphs? Yeah, okay. Yes, please. When, when Zuckerberg was a junior in high school, he transferred to Phillips uh, Exeter Academy where he spent most of his time coding, fencing, and studying Latin. Ancient Rome became a lifelong fascination, first because of the language, quote, it's very much like coding or math, and I so appreciated that, and then because of the history. Zuckerberg told me, quote, you have all these good and bad and complex figures. I think Augustus is one of the most fascinating. Basically, uh, basically through a really harsh approach, he, he established a 200 years of world, he established 200 years of world peace for non-classics majors augustus caesar born in 63 bc staked his claim to power at the age of 18 and turned rome from a republic into an empire by conquering egypt northern spain and large parts of central europe he also eliminated political opponents banished his daughter for, <laughs> for promiscuity and was suspected of arranging the execution of his grandsons quote what are the trade-offs in that, Zuckerberg said, growing <laughs> animated? On the one hand, world peace is a long-term goal that people talk about today. 200 years feels unattainable. On the other hand, he said, that didn't come for free, and he had to do certain things. In 2012, Zuckerberg and Chan spent their honeymoon in Rome. He later said, quote, My wife was making fun of me, saying she thought all of... Uh, She's saying that she thought all there there were three people on the honeymoon, me, her, and Augustus. All of the photos were of different sculptures of Augustus. The couple named their second daughter August. Extremely okay. good pair of paragraphs. Extremely oh. poor understanding of history. And Rob maybe is, what Rob the, looks the very world, upset. What's the world mean, Rob? What's it mean to have world peace? That, God, there's a lot of things here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like that section, I read that but thinking, oh, I can't so wait telling. till Rob reads that section. Yes. It's a really fucking weird section. Like, for, first of all, like, how can one be so into Augustus, but actually know so little about him this is like <laughs> no roman historian even even your most committed like uh you know western like chauvinist would say yeah, yeah, yeah. that like ah yes pax romana world peace that wasn't the world man that right. wasn't the fucking world is... and the, the empire so even within but even within like okay within the roman world there was peace not on the margins there weren't and those margins were pretty fucking extensive and they were pretty fucking movable that's the nature of the empire he built like literally yes. it was constant warfare on the borders like it's not world peace the the other the other part of this is this notion that he seems really fixated on yeah. and i understand like the temptation of it cuz like if you pose the hypothetical it's a very machiavellian proposal like do you be gentle and moderate or do you cut some fucking throats in order to permanently solve a problem and things are going to be fine. I've always had like being like someone who like likes Machiavelli probably way too much. I've always had some sympathy for the argument, but the thing is that's never actually what you accomplish. Like there, right. you're never going to get that. Ah, one person will suffer, but millions will live in, live in peace. That's never the bargain. It's never even close to the bargain you're offered. And so the Augustus model, this idea that he did certain things, but it worked out for the greater good. I think that's much more contested than you think, my guy. Like, right. he did a lot of those certain things. The regime he founded did a lot of those certain things across the next several lifetimes. Like, his successors did a lot of certain things. And the certain things never stayed as constrained as you might think. 
Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the study of history is not like math or coding, so <laughs> you're not going to get any of that from Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, but, I, I, the, the point of the margins, again, like I'm going to come back to this in in 30 minutes or whatever, but like, and in the the wake of the of the the news about climate change stuff, right? Like, so much of this vision of democracy and of technologically uh, uh, guided progress is built around a very small idea of the of the world of who counts we're doing this series of a podcast on the purge right now as, as, as everyone on this call knows and maybe if you're listening you haven't listened to those yet but believe it or not this is a, a major part part of our conversations around the purge too it's like when a policy gets put in place who is assumed to, who is the the assumed benefactor of that policy um, and it's often not policies it's often worldviews it's often ideologies that at their very, very basic first step, say, here is what we believe the world to be. And everything falls from that. And if the world is too small, if your vision of the world is, as Mark Zuckerberg seems to be, like the people he talks to at Facebook and that he meets on his weird, I'm going to meet real people tour of America. Oh my God. Which was like, remember when people were saying Mark Zuckerberg is going to run for office? I still think he might run. I still think he might. I still think he might. I want him to because he would fail... So spectacularly, I can't believe he said that. On it's going to happen now. Patrick. Now it's going to happen, and he's going to win. Wouldn't you, it's going to be terrible. I want to see that robot get up on stage <laughs> and talk policy. But that's the thing: is like so much of what the ideology that guides Facebook that makes them think like, ah, oh, it's fine. What's the quote that 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 he uses when when he adds the timeline and people are like, hey, no more time. Oh, uh, yeah, take uh, so they take a breath, breathe, breathe. the news feed. Yeah, which which like people forget was. Like now it just seems like oh that yeah. was part of Facebook forever and it's like no, no. like so, and uh, people revolted there were uh, marches in the street um, outside of their office and yeah they posted a he posted a thing that was told people to breathe which kind of gave a sense that oh maybe they're gonna pull this back but it was part of like there's this part of this ideology that's you know laid out very succinctly in the in the piece and is is coded in Zuckerberg and how he treats everything at Facebook and the response to criticism to Facebook which is like base. He says, give it enough time, people will adjust. I think what the article suggests, especially when it starts uh, scratching at the psychology of Facebook and, and its users, not so much about uh, Facebook's uh, psychology, is that people are addicted to it. Right. And so do they accept it or does it just become normalized because you have no other choice but to keep using the service and that uh, you can make all the change you want, even if it's dangerous change, and people will adapt, well, because you've addicted them for all sorts of other reasons and where else are they supposed to go? Totally. Um, something I was thinking about as I read this is there's a couple like good environmental advocacy groups in my area. Their only pages are on Facebook. There's no other way to get in touch with them. No other way to like reach out and say like, hey, how do I how do I participate in this and like organize around this? That has to be done through Facebook. And as long as that's the reality for a whole bunch of like useful human activities and connections, uh, Facebook is going to remain an extremely double-edged sword at best. Um, and this piece does not paint, does not paint a picture of a person or an organization uh, capable of reckoning with that in, in a meaningful way. Um, but Hey, uh, not everything is bad. Sometimes things are awesome and worthy of consuming. And that's why we're going to take a little break here. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, to consume pay, this, to, to pay some bills uh oh. I'm, I'm feeling i'm feeling reasonably confident in this week's ad next week's who the fuck knows but <laughs> this yeah, we're looking into it no, we're looking this into ad though maybe anyway here's an ad 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Well, that was great. Anyway... (laughs) God damn it, Rob. It's going to be an ad for Facebook Messenger or something. Oh, it has to be. be. Well, first of all, what makes you think there was an ad there in the first place? Right. Like, Who knows? <laughs> Maybe the algorithm didn't choose you for an ad. In which case, congratulations. Maybe all the people heard was complete silence. Danielle. Complete silence. Talk to me about this week's Waypoint. All right. So, friends, I meant to watch uh, Channel Zero's new season last week the screeners didn't work however so i watched a quiet place boy do i have thoughts on a quiet place some of them are good and some of them are bad i'm gonna tell you the general through line here is that it was beautifully shot the lighting and framing throughout conveyed tension beautifully and my god did i hate some of the characters (laughs) in this movie you set it up horrible Terrible decisions. I still haven't seen this. I, I I know the basic gist, but just in case sure. someone yeah, of doesn't. So uh, the movie opens. Uh, beautiful. Uh, again, it's beautifully shot. Really, truly beautifully shot. Uh, and it's silent uh, at this part of the movie. It's not a silent film, actually. There's a lot of diegetic noise, noise that's in the world of the film. And also there's a musical score. And there are some spoken lines. But it is, by and large, a quiet movie. Because in this world, uh, top line, there is a world of uh, monsters who are attracted by noise. So anyone who survives in this world needs to be extremely, extremely quiet. They can't talk. They walk around barefoot. Any kind of object that can make any noise could attract uh, this uh, a killer, horrifying monster, basically. Uh, it begins with this sort of beautiful, eerie, gorgeous scene. It's fall in New England, and a family is in a town. They kind of walk into a country store or a pharmacy or something like that. They get medicine for the youngest member of the family, a little boy. He's about four years old. They walk out. There's this beautiful shot that says, it's sound. There's like a newspaper flapping in the wind that has a a headline that says, it's sound. And it's like, oh, this is really nice kind of environmental storytelling is what you would call it in a, you know, in a game. But obviously in a movie, it's just all sort of the mise-en-scene. Using that word today, I guess. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, And, uh, Quickly, something really bad happens that shows you what happens uh, when uh, tremendous sound is made. That was on day 89. Then the movie kind of jumps to day 432 or something like that. It's only about a little over a year after. But long enough for this to become like kind of the normal that people are starting to just live with. Exactly. Uh, And it focuses on this family. Uh, Director and also lead actor John Krasinski uh, is the dad. Uh, I'm sure he has a name. It's so weird that he's... His turn to action star, which I've I've resisted, yep, completely. But the Quiet Place makes a good argument for it. <laughs> I, maybe I hated him. Like every second okay. he was in this movie, I hated this man. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. 
Uh, and a lot of that has to do with sort of the gender politics of this movie, which I, I might go into a little bit uh, further down the line. Uh, but generally, the, the sort of two leads, it's it's him and Emily Blunt, uh, his real life partner. So the movie uh, has to be good. Wife. Like Emily it's Blunt movies role. are kind of by law. Like they have to be good. I really like a lot of things about A Quiet Place. I really do. I genuinely do. I think it is beautiful and tense. Is Emily Blunt not well one of those made. things? No, Emily Blunt is okay. fantastic. Okay. Yeah. I, I, th- um, I felt like you were winding up to break some news to me. Like, Rob, like no. Emily Blunt milkshake <laughs> just... ducks in the middle of this movie. <laughs> I just really question. Now, look, I love horror movies more than most things in this world. Like horror movies are in the, like my top ten of things that make me want to live mm-hmm. life and mm-hmm. get up and. Get I'm with there. you on that deep irony. See, however, normally I'm not bothered by how stupid people are in horror movies. Normally, I have a lot of sympathy for like, okay, you're in a bad place, a bad thing happened to you. You're in a bad place. You're making a bad. No, decision. they're in a quiet place. That's they're a in a quiet place. It's a bad, bad place. place too. But it's also a quiet place, yeah. It looks quaint. I don't know. I've seen the trailer. It's Her house beautiful. is very, That doesn't seem like a bad place. It's beautiful. It's New England in the fall. Oh, or maybe yeah. I think it's upstate New York. Okay, it's Almost upstate New York thing, in the fall. Except way less good, but like still. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> similar <laughs> biome. Less coastal stuff, you know? Yeah, exactly. However, and I'm very, very sorry, but... I'm gonna I'm gonna say a thing. This is gonna partially. It's gonna spoil the after the first ten minutes of the movie. Yeah. Mom and dad made the decision after the death of a child to have another baby. Okay. In this in this world, they decided to bring a screaming monster into a unpredictable screaming creature into a world where any noise above a heartbeat will get everyone killed. Wait. Yeah. I mean, did the Pope change his, change his mind on birth control? Is that one of those situations? There were condoms in that pharmacy, all right? Oh, there was Dan- plenty but- of merchandise on the shelf. So wait, hold on. But, yeah. oh, Danielle, but, okay, yes. Yeah. The, yes, the, the, the arguments for why they do it are questionable, but the way the story addresses the consequences of that action are so much fun. Like, it is, it is worth the logical leap. I would argue it's worth the logical leap. I'm going to spoil something else about the movie, right? Okay, okay. so- when, which is related to her point, and I'm not, I, just I don't jump get ahead if you want no spoilers. I'm yeah. just gonna say <laughs> I'm spoiling. It this seems movie. like this is yeah. gonna be, a, which I'm fine with. As a person, I'm I'm totally fine with it. But I just want to let people. So say just that. to justify why I went along with that that leap, I have some, I have like some emotional sympathy for it as a parent. Uh, sure. Um, that is probably irrational because I think parents are are like forced to be irrational because that's part of coded into your DNA as parents. Once you have a kid, like is a certain amount of rationality. But um. So it's revealed, like, well, how are you going to deal with this screaming kid? Because the way that horror movies tend to deal with screaming kids is they conveniently get quiet when they're supposed to. And then they yep. conveniently make a noise when it's like, you know, it will be tense for the plot. And it's like, well, the, you know, Quiet Place realizes, well, okay, that can't really work as kids scream. And so in it's revealed that in their basement, the way to deal with this child who's going to be screaming at all times is that for most of the child's, I don't know, first year of its life, it will have to live in a coffin. Yeah. In which they have uh, conceived of a, uh, a breathing apparatus that is t- goes in there so that the child can breathe. Um, Metaphor. Otherwise, it lives <laughs> in its coffin. <laughs> it's so good. Like it's just like sure. They feed it that's a way too? you could do it. How do they feed okay. it? There's you could a take, lot of things. Well, you're taking out the baby. Tend out to be the baby quiet t- when they're being fed. Okay, yes. fair, 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 fair. True. True. I, mean, I don't know if the noise of feeding is that too much for the like it's not that's, established. That's the thing. So 
How do this they soundproof the basement? This is a movie where the, the gimmick basement? is a lot. Okay. What's up? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Why can't you just soundproof your house? Sorry to get Tactical Tuesday on y'all. Like fucking probably soundproofing the house would itself make noise. I guess oh, so. Yeah. You probably can't. There is there is a scene in this movie. Okay. Let's get to the gender politics a little Please. bit. Cause it's sure. related to the sort of family dynamic going on here. And it's related to probably the decision to have a baby. Uh, I think it's it's sort of implied that they're having this baby to replace another child. That's a little bit of kind of what's going on here. It's it's the way things are shot. It's like, okay, we're cutting from a bad thing happening to like, okay, there's a baby bump on Emily Blunt. Like, all right. Okay, I see what's going on here. There's an absence and a presence, and that's what we're doing. Okay. And it's also implied that they are a religious family. They pray silently before eating. So I, th- I think between those two things, that's kind of what's going on here. And there's a very traditional sort of family dynamic. Dad is very much the leader. Mom, who was a doctor, I think, possibly a nurse, possibly an EMT or something, but she has medical training. She knows how to use, like, she she's taking her own blood pressure to and tracking, like, when the baby was probably conceived and, like, when the due date is and all, all these kinds of things. So these are not, like, I don't know, they're not, like, simple country folk the way they are dressed and sort of walking through the world. These are people with expertise, certainly. Uh, but they, oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. There's a scene where uh, dad is going to teach the little boy whose name, I'm sorry, I forgot the other little boy's name. He's going to teach him how to fish. He does not take the little girl who wants to go. Reagan. Reagan is the girl. Mm. And Reagan is a deaf character. Uh, Reagan, and it's also implied, this is why the family knows sign language, because Reagan was already uh, hard of hearing or deaf, so they all learned sign language so they could communicate with her effectively. Dad doesn't bring her a, because she's a girl, and B, because, yeah, they're going fishing, but this is also secretly the man scream area, because next to the river, it's loud, and then the waterfall, you can scream. So Reagan misses out because she is both a girl and because she's hard of hearing or deaf. And it's very, like, at that point, from then on, I hated the dad. I just hated this asshole. How could you do this? How could you treat your children so completely differently? And also, ah, you're putting them in danger by making another baby and introducing this into the world like your kids are fucked if that baby cries like your whole family is fucked at that point like it just felt so ridiculously selfish and in a very very gendered way that really bothered me on so many levels also again i do i agree with you patrick that the gimmick is is good and you really do have to make a few sort of leaps here uh of of disbelief but put your house next to the waterfall and you all oh, have damn. a better chance of surviving i'm sorry that okay i know okay. gimmicks i know we you gotta kind of go well, with the it. waterfall the waterfall would be a problem because well i guess because they also show that like the like the ruffling of leaves is enough to set off the creatures and so like when they when they walk from the the town back to their house they've created paths full of sand so that you're creating the, i mean again like it, it's it's the rules of this world are like fung- fungible in a yeah. way that yeah. you kind of just have to go along with. Like it's it's a movie that like does not hold up under plot scrutiny very well, <laughs> right. but it, and and has it ha- its best experience like the first time. Like there are movies that like I get better with like repeated viewings, and you can like appreciate different things about them. Like I doubt this is one of them, but it is a. Uh, I, I don't disagree at all with you, like on some of the the politics of of the movie and how it handles certain characterizations. But it, I think it also sounds like you agree that like it's incredibly tense and like super yeah. fun and well shot and like it's a, it's a good horror movie, but like it doesn't rise much above like genre fare. 
Yeah, definitely. And I and I really really appreciated some elements. I actually thought Emily Blunt was great. There there are scenes where she <laughs> she sure is the toughest person in this movie by a long shot and she goes through some things and it's just like really good pure adrenaline horror like oh man I mean, the she bad must thing. have a baby in this movie right she does uh-huh that's a loud thing i've heard that yep about <laughs> Austin still, okay Austin. it's accounted for it's accounted for <laughs> Austin's still back for. at the conceit he's still like wait but yeah, what but about it's... like nope coffin sand okay. passages does she have if... the baby in the coffin no. That would be very no. heavy handed. That would be. Really welcome, yeah, right? welcome to your at, world at the, of ch- climate change. Cradle child. to grave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at that point, I think I'd have to say this movie knows what bringing a baby in is, right? <laughs> God. And of course, it is a metaphor, right? Like, of course, it's a heavy handed metaphor, but like, yeah. What What is it? So again, I have not seen this yet. I've not had the time yet. Yeah. I had to choose between The Purge and The Quiet Place last night. Uh, and I chose. <laughs> <laughs> the purge so we can do that podcast what is the <laughs> what are the, the big picture metaphors like coming through this besides like the family out on its own in the woods doing some doing some yeah, family out on its own in the woods i i think the terror probably of bringing a child into the world at all i think that's that's what this is kind of a metaphor for like it's a dangerous horrifying bad world but if you want to have a child and love it and and grow it up in a nurturing way you have to make all these concessions and it's dangerous and there's no guarantees gotta and build a coffin the baby coffin yeah you got a baby coffin that they've outfitted with with oxygen with a they didn't have the right size mask for an infant but it's all right i'm not gonna okay you know, that's a nitpick well that doesn't count as an actual criticism of the movie i had somehow um, not like realized this was an emily blunt movie so like i i think i have to like now i'm angry i didn't watch yeah. it uh, yeah. To get ready for it, because I, I love me some Emily Blunt. Like I love Emily Blunt to the point where I've seen the Adjustment Bureau more than once. I still have to see that. <laughs> oh wow! I want to yeah. see that. Austin. You should see the Adjustment Bureau, and like it's not good, but like it's real good. Okay. She's good in it. Yeah, it's that's the thing. She's good in in this movie. She's great. I think she's great in this movie. Like it's it's not the most satisfying role, but she does a hell of a lot in a basically silent role as basically mom woman. Mom woman, you know, it's like kind of what's going on here. Mom woman. She was a doctor or something. I mean, there there are like vestiges of of people's roles before this this sort of hell time. There there's a lot going on there. And my god, yeah, it's so beautifully shot. There's ways in which the framing and the lighting just do absolute wonders uh for like selling the tension. I I don't actually think it was a very scary movie. Like on the on the old scare meter it was much more tense than it was scary. It was much more. Uh, but like I, I, I but it never, it never lets up that tension once it starts. Yeah. Like there's a protracted, like once the movie goes, like it waits a long time to sort of go, and then once the moment it pivots, I actually found the tension to be more enjoyable than like traditional scares because you are just yeah. like on the edge of your seat, and you want to. I've never heard a theater be as quiet. At, like, like you know, to literally like sure. where people were actually in some ways role playing the film because uh, th- there were moments where it was just dead ass silent. And it was it was a movie that's unfortunate that you like if either of you get around to watching it like you I'm a big stay at home and watch movie person. I advocate for that. But this is one of those movies that benefits deeply from like a big ass screen. And if more importantly, just really good sound. Um, yeah. if, you, if you don't have a good speaker set, watch it with headphones. Um I'm covered. Yeah, I think that's super fair. Yeah. <laughs> Rob, Rob, I actually, one day this could be your waypoint too, because I'm, I'm very curious what you, yeah. you think of it too. 
especially on the blunt scale, you know. Yeah, like Edge of Edge of Tomorrow and Sicario, like yeah. Uh, although where do I put Sicario these days? Who knows? Who knows? My it's no dead of, day of the soldado. <laughs> Rob, anyway. have you seen? I watched that second one. I haven't seen that yet. I've not it seen bad? it. Austin, do I need to see this? You, you need to. Yes, we need to. Fuck it doesn't have to be next week because okay. Austin, you're gonna be gone. I'll be gone. But I'll get around to it. All right, day of the soldado. You need to watch. Day, does it Sicar- remember what Sicario the 2 is? we missed the point y'all yeah that's my question <laughs> same screenwriter same screenwriter that's so weird Maybe, I don't know yeah. I don't know you got you have alright you all right. have to watch it alright I'm on a plane this weekend maybe I'll get to maybe I'll get or this yeah. week maybe I'll get to see it there uh, while you're on that plane, Austin, are you going to be perchance listening to any good podcasts about <laughs> uh, urban history I might be I've been in the middle of listening to a new podcast from of all places <laughs> USA Today, which is not I didn't realize they had a, a podcast team, but apparently they do. Um, and I've been listening to a podcast called The City, uh, which pitches itself um, uh, as uh, let me see what's there. What I'm trying to see if they have like a really good here is what the podcast is uh, breakdown. Um, here it is. This is this is it's spring 1990 after years of disinvestment. Highways are rebuilt, old buildings demolished, new skyscrapers erected. All that rubble has to go somewhere, and its destination isn't a landfill. It's a pair of vacant lots in a black, working-class neighborhood called North Lawndale. The man behind this operation is a white guy sporting a Cosby sweater and underworld connections. What follows is a tour de force through Chicago's underbelly. Aldermen get indicted, an FBI investigation goes awry, a community's resilience is tested, all unfolding under the spect- under the specter of racism in America. Um, so it is a six-part uh, uh, mini-series podcast. Uh, I've listened to three of the epi- episodes so far. Uh, the fourth they're one, shortish. They're shortish. They're like 30 minutes Like 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah, totally. But then they're, at 1.5x, oof, get out You through run it. through it. You get through it immediately. <laughs> uh, I think they're, the fourth one just came out this week. Uh, the fifth one is next week. So so you plenty of time to, to catch up to it. Uh, and honestly, even if you just give the first two episodes a listen, I think you've gotten a, a good taste of what's so interesting about this show. Um, you know, I went into the show expecting it to feel like uh, shows like Crime Town, uh, other shows about corruption and crime in urban America uh, and government. Um, and I was immediately struck by who gets to speak and who gets to speak first in this show. Uh, I think that's why I think it's worth a listen. Um, you know, we we I, this is the second podcast I brought, right? What, did I, what was the other one that I brought? Serial, serial, right? And and I think in a similar way that we talked about serial kind of correcting some of its past mistakes around uh, looking at kind of ignoring the the victims of of the the kind of scandalous and and uh, spectacular crimes that it that it uh, focused on in the first season. Um, I think this does a good job of shifting what I've seen in this style of podcast before. Uh, by specifically, again, one opening on the residents of North Lawndale who found themselves facing a six-story tall mountain of debris, of rock, of cement, of rebar, of just dirt um, in the middle of their community across from a school. Uh, what, and is, what is the time frame in this? Again? Not, this is the well, '90s during like basically like a gotcha. Chicago restoration project. Right. 
gotcha. uh, which Mir Daily who came in to go, you know, Jesus Christ, go read about the dailies. That's a whole yeah. separate. <laughs> Very common. Illinois I mean, politics, is, that's about Illinois politics is a whole yeah, separate politics. Totally. That, that'll gotcha. be our separate. We're going to talk about Illinois politics. Um, <laughs> corruption basically um and basically like they were renovating the downtown they were putting in all of this like very aesthetic looking stuff while also investing in the highways and like basically trying to like uh, find uh, like a chicago 2.0 like building up the infrastructure making it an attractive place to live uh illinois has had a problem for decades of folks uh leaving to cheaper states like wisconsin and indiana um and so that's the like this it's part of it it's contextualized in a spot when oh illinois is like or Chicago specifically is like becoming like a, a new city and like it's getting cleaner and prettier and updated. Right. That is the for me, that is the thing that makes this so fascinating is there's a quote from Robin Amer in the first episode. And Robin Amer is the host. And she says, when a city gets rebuilt, it puts its new skyscrapers and parks and monuments front and center. It doesn't always want you to see how those things got built or who got hurt in the process. And I've been thinking so much lately about global warming as we've talked about about the fate of democracy in in the world about the the state of of kind of this weird technological progressivism that that believes that like the way forward is a few good apps and like some some new clean eco science um that's going to save us all and this show is like a perfectly timed reminder that there is always a margin um, because when you look at the stuff that, 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 you know, Mayor Daly was doing here in this, in this moment, it is like Patrick said, all of the stuff that made downtown Chicago look like a modern city, a city, the that, bean, the, right. The bean is like the best example of this. The bean is like this sculpture, this, Still lot of this giant as silver the, as though a giant took a shit somewhere <laughs> and then they oh, shined don't be mean the real... cloud gate. I love, I love the bean. I love the bean, but come on. But, but that is the thing. It's like, okay, well, when you're cleaning up this neighborhood, when you're cleaning up these places and you're, you're literally, you know, uh, destroying old buildings and, and creating parks, where does the trash go? And the answer is that a man named John Christopher, who runs a company <laughs> named Chris John, Chris John, um, wow. s- snuck in and said, you know what? If you take this to a real dump, they're going to call, they're going to charge you $150 a load. I got this property right here next to the school. You can unload it for ten bucks a load, uh, and you know who cares? It's it's a black district at a time when the kind of non-democratic um, uh, machine, uh, kind of insider uh, 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 politicians were out of power. The people who could have represented the the black folks in that neighborhood were were in fact in many cases working with the white establishment and being used by the white establishment uh, a complete failure to actually protect these people um some some fantastic scenes over the over the course of this podcast that get at that notion that like someone is always on the outside someone regardless of how wide you cast your your, your net like someone is out of and this is going back to the zuckerberg piece your conception of the world and it isn't enough to say i want to make things better in what i think is the world you constantly have to think okay I'm going to make – you have to do the Augustus thing that Zuckerberg believes Augustus did and actually think and and research and look into who will be hurt by these policies, what are the decisions I'm making, and like how do I go forward at all in a way that actually achieves my goals with you know where the costs are – are something I can live with and something that, that actually does not harm people in a huge way. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I was fascinated throughout, throughout the, the episodes I've heard so far, and especially at the sequences in which um, 
you know, the, the procedurality of working inside of city government comes around and bites you in the ass. Uh, there is a fantastic sequence in which there is a reenactment of a court scene where there is a debate over what counts as mm. waste. Wow. So this this actually really jumped out at me because, first of all, it, it is legitimately Kafka-esque. This guy is yeah. dumping piles of shit into this neighborhood. And the other thing is, like, the scale of it is kind of almost ridiculous in that, like, it's such a small-time racket. Like, 150 a real dump. This guy's saving, doing this, he's saving, what, 140 per, per load? Eventually yeah. that adds up, but even thinking about it, it's like, man, what a nickel and dimey uh like scheme this is but like this is this is the shit you can get away with and there are people in the world there are actors in the world who are going to look at that 140 dollars off the book or you know they're gonna miss bill and to them done on a big enough scale that's worth that's money worth stealing um but they take this guy to court and from the first like the city lawyer is like well you're running a waste site in in uh lawndale and the guy's like i don't know what you're talking about and they're like, well, you're dumping. And his lawyer's like, no, no, no. What do you mean by waste? No, like, well, concrete, rebar. He's like, you mean materials. I run, oh I recycle this stuff. That stuff has value to my business. I will not, I will not answer any questions you have. Like, if you say the word waste, I don't know what you're talking about. So I'm not going to answer them. You be, be specific. Yeah. Say rebar. Say, say concrete. And it also ties into something. This is a problem with uh, regulatory enforcement. Uh, pretty much across the board. Uh, there was an, I think it was a SEC lawyer, uh, might have been FTC lawyer. Uh, so either Securities Exchange or Federal Trade Commission talking about whenever you have legal cases that the first hurdle they have to clear are what you call water is wet tests. You are not regulating enough. You are not, you are not being legally aggressive enough because if you're going to a court and you have to first prove that like water is wet for the case to move forward, then you're never going to get anywhere. You're never going to improve anyone's lives. You're never right. actually going to accomplish the ends of your organization. This is a perfect example of that. This guy pulls this uh, little semantic game and the court is kind of tickled by it. They're like, holy yeah. shit, maybe, maybe it isn't waste. And they refuse to grant the injunction <laughs> that would stop this guy from doing this while he wow. continues to do it, while he continues to dump, so with no injunction, he just keeps going. It's brutal. It's like it's it's you know. There's a bit in which in which it becomes clear that he describes himself as a beautifier and recycler, and finds ways to make that true based on legal definitions of what counts as recycling. It doesn't it doesn't matter that most of what he has doesn't actually isn't actually recyclable. A little bit of it is, so he's a recycler. Uh, it doesn't matter that no one's been hired to do any recycling. He's a recycler because it's recyclable material that he's dumping. It might one day get recycled, who could say? Uh, it's it is fascinating. Patrick, do you have any insight as being someone in this area and like having in the nineties you were around certainly, but I don't I doubt you were, yeah, you were five I, well, or unfor- something, right? Unfortunately, uh I'm probably familiar with this dynamic uh, of uh like I tell people I'm from Chicago, but right. I'm not from <laughs> I'm not from Chicago. You know, say like I'm from the northwest suburbs. Right. Uh it, well this when I moved back, I got so used to telling people I was from Chicago. Uh, just to as the shorthand, and then I got back and I was telling people I'm from Chicago. They're like, "No, you're not. You're from blah blah blah, <laughs> you right. asshole." Right. <laughs> and I lived in Chicago for a couple of years, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not. You don't have to scratch very far down the surface of 
Chicago politics, like Chicago politics has been, and this isn't something that goes back to like the gangster era. Like this is t- like modern Chicago, pol- like, you know, are the governor, you know, uh, Blagoj- go read up on Blagojevich, right? right? Like, the, God, you know, our governors, have, you know, our governors, Jesus. our mayors go, wait, what, wasn't it back-to-back governors we had go to jail? Mm-hmm. I think that was uh, the case. Um, and, and Blagojevich now even infects our current politics because uh, J.B. Pritzker, our uh, shitty rich dude, Ostwile progressive who is up for the the uh, the the, uh, the Democrat nomination like is on a bunch of tapes with uh, Blagojevich like talking about uh, you know wheeling and dealing back when it's just Illinois is fucked go read about his politics right. like none of this is, is surprising certainly all sorts of politics are corrupt but like Chicago has a very on brand style of corruption that is fascinating and infuriating and like I would so when you pinged me Austin about this podcast like I looked at the description to like. <laughs> I didn't. It didn't like process. Like I didn't notice that it was like said Chicago. Yeah. Um. And the moment I saw that, then I was like, oh fuck, and then started downloading. <laughs> so I haven't listened to the first episode. Um. But I'm super excited. And one thing this does really well that I think the serial season three is also doing well is like making sure to provide the participants. That's exactly that were, it. They were in these actions have a voice. That's not always possible, right? Like is serial. Uh, the most recent episode of serials. Uh. You know, season three, that's just you know dealing on the prison system and specifically a court system. There are, like, instances where, you know, Sarah Canning, the reporter, has to, like, outline, like, these people just won't talk to me. Yeah. And so, like, outlining where you cannot provide voices, but not using that as an excuse to then just not not find ways to get voices in. And I think this, this at least this first episode, seems like it's a podcast that has picked an angle in which they can make sure not just read you a Wikipedia entry, right. but they can give actual uh, articulated voice to people who participated in a process that – achieve an outcome it is immediately um, speaking to like the black women of this neighborhood yeah. who nice. were the women who organized who petitioned who tried <laughs> to do who tried to get their alderman <laughs> to fix anything first episode and so the cliffhanger is basically like we're gonna sue his ass yeah 100 percent. it's so <laughs> yeah. good um and you know it, it, that is so important to me partially because of the way chicago has become mythologized um by the right as a as a place of urban dysfunction Mm-hmm. Um, specifically the argument that comes out, you know, this is obviously not about, about, uh, uh, direct gun violence, let's say, uh, but, but you, there is the conversation that does emerge by the, by the third episode that is like, it, it, the podcast veers towards like a broken window theory of, of politics at certain moments where it's like, well, this, uh, it, it's different because the, the broken window theory, I should explain this broken window theory, uh, of crime is, is effectively that like, well, if you have a community that keeps itself looking nice and you, you make sure that like you, you fix your windows when it break, when they, when they break, it sends a, a signal to, to evildoers that this is not the place that they can fuck with. It sends a, it sends a message of security and of law abiding and that you care about Aesthetic your- Aesthetic as policy. Exactly. A hundred percent. And so this, this, this podcast does take the case, and, and I suspect that the, the stats do support this, that like when there is a six, when there is a multiple football field long, six story high pile mountain of, of trash- there are there are you know effects. There are there is a rise in, in crime. You know, they, they talk about the rise in in open prostitution on the street and things like that. In in a way that I think sometimes does not land particularly well. Like it, it, there are some hard shifts from like we're talking to real people to like okay, but the prostitutes aren't real people, so we're not going to interview anyone who's involved in that side of right. things. Um, but 
But uh, there is still an important distinction there, which is that the broken window theory is about you as an individual. You are the one who has to repair your window. And this is very much about a government, you know, uh, uh, completely deciding not to take care of people who have been, whether literally or only in in process, been turned into second class citizens. Um, I think that's an important distinction. But but I do think that there is a there is there is something really fascinating here around the it isn't just like who gets to speak and who gets to tell that story um it it is also the the ways in which with years of remove you only then can kind of see who was to be who was at fault right um there's a the show does a good job of doubling back on itself and saying like okay it seems like this dude sold out his community, but we're going to build the context, and this is the, the, the bulk of the third episode, we're going to build the context of what the, the Chicago political system is, what the, the insiders and the, the kind of regular Democrats are versus the, the kind of like independent Democrats are, where the black community is versus the, the white community of Democrats. Everyone here is voting Democrat, but that does yeah, not like, mean— Yeah, people aren't aware yeah. that Illinois is essentially a one-party state. Like, yeah. there are Republicans— but they have very little. We have a Republican governor, but that's a rarity, and he's gonna. He's definitely not gonna win re-election. <laughs> that was more of a like him winning was more of a just like a fuck you to the Democratic establishment as a way of just like changing things up. But like Illinois is just Democrats through and through, totally. and then shades of Democrat. And then it becomes you want centrists come to Illinois. Oh is what boy, I'm saying. absolutely. <laughs> so I mean, and then the thing that works so well with that is like because you recognize that there are there is this nuance there, and you're giving time for that nuance because it doesn't have to be an aside. It also means that you can get not just into the nuance, but into like the real material detail of lives. There's this perfect detail early on that just it's a small thing, but it's like one of the women uh, is talking about like we don't have air conditioners. So when there's all this dust particle shit in the air, like we just have box fans in the windows blowing it all in. There's no filter. There's nothing. And just like, right, there's no air conditioners. That's that's such a small detail that so many listeners would not consider the idea of just like the box fan blowing in this dust, you know, leading to potentially a spike in asthma, a spike in in respiratory conditions in general. It is is a a fairly strong show at grounding things in both those material uh, concerns and and also finding the room to explain the nuance of a system that, like, if you're not from Chicago, all of these terms that mean – that have all this meaning, if they didn't sit down and and explain them, it would just kind of go over your head and you'd miss so much of what makes the story so remarkable. Something that I'm not sure the show is going to have an answer to. Um, I'm curious, but, like – and I certainly don't have an answer for it, but it's a question I think worth contemplating uh, as we sort of wrap up for this week is what do you do? Like a lot of our system, our society, while backed in the end by the idea of the force of law, depends on people roughly doing the right thing, being decent actors. Yeah. What do you do in a case where somebody <laughs> just openly like decides to flout the law, like flout good manners convention anything just looks you dead in the eye as you make your airtight case that what they're doing is harmful and wrong and they don't even have the right to do it it is what they're doing is criminal and they know all this and they just look at you and they tell you fuck out of here right they like literally that's what they that's literally what what, the, what he tells the community leaders but yeah. like what do you do when somebody they say they say we're going to take you to court and he basically threatens them yeah and says yeah okay yeah go for it 
Fuck off. And this community tries to address this through the system. And the system is also not really prepared to deal. The system's not prepared to deal with somebody who's going to be so brazen as to say, waste? I don't deal in waste. It doesn't comprehend what it's dealing with here. And so a situation becomes a crisis. And I don't know, like, this is a tragedy to a degree of, like, a city failing a community and a system failing a community and a lot of, like, the system being slow and ineffective. But also I think there's a question I'm starting to start turning over is at a certain point, is a guy like that somebody who's going to sit there and be like, fuck you, make me. At a certain point, you need to find another way to make that guy. Also, what happens when that guy is Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah. Right? Like, what happens when that guy is not just, like, a two-bit criminal who's trying to make 140 bucks on a $10 turn, right? Or whatever yeah. it is that this guy is making, really. Um, you, you know, uh, what is it when, when it's someone who has more money than any of us could actually comprehend having? I, I, the amount of money that Facebook has, the amount of money that, like, the the true one percent amazon has. or apple or yeah, apple i mean there's that stat in, in the, right yeah. the big four have have a higher gdp than than france is the is the quote in the in the uh the piece but i mean even just facebook alone uh has has a higher gdp than than many countries do uh and and in a world in which you know the world is a capitalist society still uh you buy stuff uh and and there are fewer and fewer protections uh against sort of uh shaping the political reality of our time with with money than there ever have been partially because of things facebook has has decided and pushed for um there is it, it is hard to comprehend dealing with a problem like like a mark zuckerberg um because you know in a community like this at some point you go like well fuck it like we got to get rid of this guy yeah i don't know what we do but we got to push this guy out of here maybe that is through intimidation or threats or violence at like there's a point at which that stuff or you know eventually it's just you know begging the city again and again and again and putting you completely overturning the city political system so that one of your people is in charge finally who yeah. can take a stance there are lots of ways to do that stuff when it is a dude with a lot the thing that is terrifying is that like i don't know how you how do you today let's say we wanted to outlaw facebook what's the platform we would have to spread that message on facebook, facebook right facebook or television Neither of those are really useful for us. Carrier pigeon. Uh, you know, might, I, I feel like I haven't like subscribed. Yeah. yeah. Right? Basically. Um, it's, it's, and I, I, we're saying this as people who have access to a platform. Like, we know that tens of thousands of people are probably listening to us right now. So we're trying to say that. We're trying to use our platform as best we can, but it's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. The amount of people who, like, read or listen to voices like ours are nothing compared to those who control the platforms and this goes back to like what i was saying at the very top which is like when i think about this stuff intellectually it is depressing and it is hard to imagine a world in which resistance achieves um but also you got to swing right what's that story though about like was this in was this in harlem where like trash collection was like re like underserving the neighborhood and people just started bringing the trash out into like the streets and blocking thoroughfares and like putting it on the like, like I feel like there was sort of a massive like this was a case a similar situation a somewhat similar situation of people just being like, fine, I'm bringing my problem to your fucking door. Right. And well, you and I were just talking about this, right? Which is like 
you and I, after in the the long night of the beginning of this week, where neither of us slept, two days ago, uh, reading about the the new projections about about climate change, we were talking about Occupy and about when Occupy had so much potential energy. And for me, it was every moment up until they moved into offices. While Occupy Wall Street functioned uh, as a real political force was when it was disrupting physical space, when it was doing something that like annoyed people every day again and again and again, when it uh, – I'm not saying Occupy Wall Street does not have its issues that we could not criticize, absolutely. Uh, but, but, I, but I think that those are the sorts of strategies that appeal to me in 2018 are the ones that are about – getting in in the faces of people i mean we've we've all i think tweeted at this point that like we support people bothering senators at restaurants you know when when they are and and if you're going to tweet at me that you were surprised that i would say such a thing i suggest re-listening to every word i've ever said um because this is not a should not be a surprise uh those are the strategies that have impact in 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 2018 like to answer your question i guess rob is like yeah the, the things that we need to do when the system has failed is to you know advocate for solutions and figure out solutions and figure out strategies to get eyeballs that have nothing to do with using the system right um, or you know i mean uh you know obviously kavanaugh made it through but like there was a very critical moment where an activist like cornered him in an elevator yep. and bravely told her story and you know by all accounts got him to change his mind at the very last second it didn't stave off you know the, the, inevitable. the inevitable but that was someone bucking the traditional yes. manners. That it was bucking uh, ideas of civility and discourse and saying, fuck you, listen to me, and basically grabbing him by the collar yeah. and saying, you're not going – you're going to look at me and you're going to listen. Those and women was, would not have been heard if they'd called his office or sent a letter. Because, no, or went on because, CNN, right? right? Like, like, or wrote an editorial, um, and it shows up in the op-ed section of the New York Times. Like, that's just not how it works anymore. And, and, when, and when those avenues no longer work – and you have to press in, in in new ways in order to try and, you know, make it clear, you know, what your position is. People still get upset when you get in the streets is, is the thing I'll say. Mm-hmm. They really still do. And uh, it is worth continuing to pursue it. As long as we live in physical bodies, <laughs> yeah. occupy physical space. Yeah. That is still a worthwhile uh, You know, I, I, I think we will live in the, the age of uh, – I think we're going to live in, in the age of eco-terrorism and in the age of – uh, I, I can imagine the world in which some people take down fucking Amazon servers in physical space sometime in our lives as a form of protest. Like, I can so clearly imagine that happening. Um, you know, we talked about Tom Clancy briefly at the top of this. And I, I the first Tom Clancy book I read is a, was Rainbow Six, which is a, a book about eco-terrorists and taking down these radical eco-terrorists who, you know, in the in the in the the rearview mirror here, in the with the with the the benefit of uh, of hindsight, whew, maybe they were in the right. I don't remember what the specific instance was or the specific issue of. They that were book, going to release that a bioplay that was going to extinguish human life on Earth, but. Uh, Oh, but you but they, they were caricatures of the environmental movement, yes, like fundamentally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, not all environmentalists. Yeah, at least they didn't invent Facebook, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, right. So I just like I think that we're going to live in that time, and it's going to be very weird, and it's going to be like, it's going to be strange because I think for for many of us, those those forms of action well, have have been mythologized. There's an element. The thing that's going to be tough to handle with this is um, in our discourse. There's this idea that saying, like, having certain policies 
that radicalize and provoke terror like terrorists uh saying that like those policies create these problems like the like terrorist blowback is caused in part by policies you choose to pursue harm you choose to met out in the world and every time that argument has been voiced which is eminently sensible and like basic cause and effect it's immediately presented in almost every context as what are you doing apologizing for terrorists what are you doing sympathizing for terrorists and as long as I to be discourse... clear, what you're saying, just like to break it 100 percent down, what you're saying is that like if we get on if we get on Twitter, if we say on this podcast and we say if someone tomorrow burns down an Amazon server farm and we go like, yeah, uh, we just did a podcast about how that was probably an inevitability based on the direction of, of society right now. People would then at that point say you're defending violent action. Right. Right. Uh, as a way to shut down that discourse entirely. Right. And I think that's going to be the trick to make those conversations the least bit productive is to prevent that sort of centrist blocking of the conversation and ducking of the issue. Because what ends up happening in that situation is you end up in a situation where, where, you're, where you're saying, well, you know, how, how dare you defend terrorists every time you say a policy of aggressive and unrelenting interventionism in the Middle East is causing terrorist incidents elsewhere in the world. If you even say that, you are somehow sympathizing or uh, trying to like make excuses for attacks on civilians. And that is that basically forestalls any meaningful discussion of whether or not these policies are worth the cost of carrying them forward. Like are these like forget like their moral defensibility, frequently they're morally mm-hmm. indefensible. But like, are they even accomplishing the ends that they purport to have? And you need to have those conversations. And having them blocked at the start every time by that line of argument is going to be a problem. And we are going to see this age of radical action being taken to address these problems. And to an extent, this is just like, it's a law of nature. Like you can, you can create like this much pressure in a system around these issues. There are going to be backlashes to that. And it's foolish not to discuss those costs up front and discuss them freely. And we live in a world in which if we went to block a highway right now, if, if you know, in, in support of, uh, in, in protest of the, you know, uh, the threat of retracting women's reproductive rights or uh, new threats to... You or know, abandonment today, of fuel uh, efficiency standards. Totally, 100%. Right now, if we were like, you know what? No cars move today. We're going to block this out right now. There would be a lot of people who would say that what we were doing was the wrong way about doing yep. it. We going the wrong way about voicing that. You should be calling your that senator. That argument would never not what... go against the people who are jerking it to the idea of driving over our bodies in the street, by the way. Like, those not. people, mm-hmm. like, they're understood. Like, well, they're just, a, you know. They're being hyperbolic. Yeah. That's all. They're just saying they wish they could. They're not They would actually... never do that except for those times they do. Think they about. Do. Think about Except the when they do yeah. it, yeah. think about the truck driver you're stopping, Rob. Right. You know, think about the well, you're you're impacting commerce. The on Main Street, they're suffering because you blocked the the street for four hours last night. Right. And that is the sort of like false equivalency, and it also becomes the water is is water wet argument again, right? They're like, we're going to sit here and and start. We're going to stop the debate at the the way you're having it instead of engaging with the the actual issues. We're going to instead of actually getting into like. All right, you're right. We should we should change the way the we have environmental regulations in this in this country in ways that go beyond just tax incentives. Uh, that conversation can never happen because 
we're in that we're in this like rock and hard play situation. If we try to have that conversation by using the traditional means, the way that we've been doing for for decades now, uh, that that conversation is shot is shot down, is dismissed. It isn't urgent enough. Those those though, if you're sending out that message on the same channel that you're watching, you're on the same the same platforms that you were like watching, you know, uh, schlocky TV that you that you should watch because you're trying to recover from your bad week, or from on the same platforms where you're seeing your friends vacation photos or on the same platform where you're excited to hear about us talk about red dead redemption like it's so easy to file that information away but when you leave those platforms and those methods of discourse behind and take more radical action the second you do that and even even not that radical action i don't think stopping someone in an elevator and shouting about about your experience of being a a, a target of sexual assault is that radical a thing but there were people um, even there people yelling at susan collins I know. people were like you should never yell at a senator never yell at a senator oh, people yeah. on the left were saying yeah. that, rob people we know were saying that uh as if as if having a as if being a senator somehow carries with it the the a shield for all public criticism um, that is immediately dismissed on the grounds of it not being going through one of these these uh, these platforms that have lost all of their efficacy. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. For me, it's like the answer is pretty simple. You just have to turn out the tune out those people and actually say the thing. It is it is that important. It is that important in the face of the the news that ten to twenty to thirty years from now there there will be no going back. That we have to start moving immediately on these issues in the face of articles like the one about Zuckerberg who is making decisions about a platform that affects millions millions of people on a whim like billions billions of people now you're right on on a whim uh you have to be willing to find new vectors so that you can be heard um and for me the first and and biggest way of doing that is organizing a number um facebook is bigger than a march right it is billions of people but there is still something very powerful about 10,000 people walking down the street. That's not that many people, well, but it's a lot 10, of people, people walking down the street. You have a shit see. to be there. Like yeah, exactly. a billion people on Facebook exactly. are there for whatever the fuck reason, but like 10,000 people, <laughs> like that's different. That's like you're here. Yeah. Like you've chosen There's to be There's a potential yeah. energy to it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think we still think of physical our physical bodies and physical space as being more real than things that happen on the internet. I do think we are still attuned to that as a species at this well point. I, I yeah. think also like just we aggressively train ourselves and other people to tune out things on the internet for for your own sanity but like there there is yeah. it is difficult to know what is real on the internet at times it is difficult to know how much energy and like genuine concern and sincerity is like ha- is, is is real on the internet uh at times yeah there is something um, different about like physical presence and commitment. Um, yep. But yeah. Anyway, so that's um, that's that's what I'm working over this week is just thinking about like, what do you do with somebody who just refuses to listen or do the right thing and wants to subvert every system you're supposed to have access yeah. to for redressive grievances. Anyway, uh, that'll do it for this week's Waypoints. Our thanks to Too Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. And you can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people keep up with you online? 
You can find me at Patrick Klubik. And I want to make an aside that if you liked the uh, the uh, the New York article about Mark Zuckerberg, the it was also a fantastic companion interview um, with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, in which Evan Osnos um, uh, has a discussion about the piece with some extra details. So, nice. just an FYI. Danielle. You can find me at Danielle R I. Awesome. At Austin underscore Walker. And, and on that same tip, uh, there was also an incredible and detailed motherboard piece on this problem that gets into the problem of the of, of moderation at, at Facebook called The Impossible Job Inside Facebook Struggle to Moderate 2 Billion People. That is also worth a read. It is not as much on the Zuckerberg side, but it is very much on the like, what do you what is it you do? How do you do that thing um, that is fascinating and scary? All right. Uh, well, we hope you've enjoyed the break, as grim as it could sometimes be. Uh, I, I, I wish we had better, clearer answers for you if you came here looking for those, but uh, hopefully at least you left with some, with some decent uh, food for thought or a decent podcast backlog or reading list. Uh, we'll be back soon with... Is this week Red Dead? This week is Reddit. Yeah, so uh, we're going to be coming coming at you again real soon with a Waypoint 101 on Red Dead Redemption, uh, a game that if you know me, uh, you know I adore. Uh, I just I just celebrate uh, every every moment, every beat of, of Red Dead Redemption. I think it's uh, a fantastic addition to the canon of great American westerns. Um, and I hope you'll I hope you'll listen to that, uh, especially if you really love Red Dead and want to hear somebody sing its praises. Uh, be sure and tune in. Uh, you're cruel anyway hope you'll join us for that until then do not give in to astonishment despair neither When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.